You are listening to a sermon from Our Voices series at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. In this series, we're taking some time to listen and learn from the pastors of other churches in the greater Seattle area. To find out more, please visit us at www.doxa-church.com or join us on Sunday mornings in downtown Bellevue at 9 and 11 a.m. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Nice to see all of you. I don't know how you're supposed to respond to that. Um, (laughs) My name is Paul Dean, and I am pastor of Soma Eastside Church. R- truly a joy and an honor to, uh, to, to greet you in the name of Jesus from your sister church in Issaquah, and uh, by God's grace, uh, they're doing something right now over there. In faith, uh, I, I came here hoping that that would continue, but who knows, God's in control. I want to thank uh, Donald and Jeff Uh, for uh, how they've invited me here and welcomed me. And I want to thank really all of your elders. They have done beautiful work these last several years uh, building unity in the region, and I am thankful for them. Often they give this space uh, to things that I'm involved in, and I am grateful for uh, that. I know that it's because of your generosity and giving that this is available, not only just for people that call DOXA, home, but also Christians and ministries around the region. So, so thank you. It's an honor to be here, and it's my prayer today that I'm a blessing to you. My, uh, I come here not just with myself, but with my wife, Catherine. I think we put a nice uh, picture of her up there so you could meet her and, uh, and wonder how I uh, persuaded her to marry me. Uh, I'm also the dad of Nathan, Carolyn, Elena, and Lizzie. And as I said, the pastor of Soma Eastside Church. So I'm going to summarize this for you. Many of you have a short attention span, and I'm just going to summarize the whole message here so that if you drift off halfway through, you'll still get the message. And I'm going to use a word called ministry that I want to define first. I'm going to talk about my personal journey through ministry through a lot of this sermon. And uh, I don't want you to think that's something that pastors do. That's something that believers in Jesus do. And ministry is simply serving others, blessing others based on the gifts that God has given you in Jesus' name. So you're blessing your neighbors, you're blessing your neighborhood. Some of you have been called specifically to be a blessing to a family, to a block, to a a specific group of people, maybe it's your coworkers, but this is something that all of us are focused on. And you're focused on this because you're part of a missional church. You're part of a missional church movement. You've heard sermon after sermon after sermon on being a missionary, amen? Okay, that was slightly subdued. But it's so intense that even when you go to the bathroom above, uh, maybe it's not true in the women's restroom, I haven't explored that, but in in the men's restroom, there's actually a sign uh, in there that says you're missionary. So it is, it's 
inescapable, and some of you have uh, put your toe in the water, some of you have been involved in mission and ministry for years, some of you feel like right now that you're in a little bit over your head, or maybe, maybe, likely even there's dozens of you that, are, that have tried and were so disappointed, so hurt, and so frustrated that you actually find yourself on the sidelines right now as far as ministry goes. And I can relate to that. Well, I, was, I was in seminary in 1999. I was serving at a small church, and the pastor was continually preaching against the use of any alcohol of any, of any amount. And I came to him, and I said, I'm about ready to teach the youth group the book of John, uh, which seems right to do. And uh, I know that in a couple chapters here, I'm going to run up against Jesus' first miracle, and I just wanted your help in trying to interpret this for the youth. And he looked at me and he said, well, do you think Jesus turned water into wine or grape juice? And I said, wine, and that was my last day as youth pastor. (laughs) And I'll say this, they intended well. They were doing their best to serve Jesus and protect the youth. But the end result after the emergency deacons meeting was to remove me. And I remember sitting in my car, fighting back tears, just thinking, how did this happen? This isn't what I thought ministry was going to be. I was doing my best to sacrificially serve this church and the youth. And in my immaturity, I felt like God had slammed that door shut. And so off I went to Washington State University. Anybody? First service, I had a, a dear soul up front who said, go kooks. Maybe we should just close in prayer, sweetheart. We are not welcome here. We could shake the dust off our feet and move on. But I left ministry. I was, it was painful. And for years I was bitter. Now let me try. I tried to connect here a second ago. How many, have you seen Three Amigos? Okay. A little better. If you haven't seen it, it was one of the, the highly uh, critically acclaimed movies of the 1980s. And uh, there's an early scene where these actors that think they're in a movie, but actually they're in a real confrontation with a dangerous criminal named El Wapo. And, um, and they, they get into this conflict and all of a sudden they realize that the criminals are, are firing real bullets at them. And they start crying and they give up. That was me. I was done with ministry. Now they're, fi- they're firing real bullets. This is difficult. This is not what I expected. So I want to give you the gift of endurance today. This is my prayer uh, for you that you would see that, uh, that God calls us to something difficult, that, that we need to have hope. We need to have hope in Jesus if we want to get through ministry because the first obstacle to our endurance is having unrealistic expectations of what God is calling us to. And we should have proper expectations. We do have a Bible, and in in the Bible, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect minister, actually was crucified. So for his followers, we should expect difficulty, unfair difficulty. Matter of fact, all of the apostles that followed him experienced great difficulty. Only one died of natural causes. But the truth is, while pain and unexpected difficulty, well, you see it in other people's lives, and it's kind of inspiring. It's interesting, but when it happens to us personally, 
It's frustrating. It's intense. So I lift up this call of unfinished hope to you. Amid the unfinished work that God calls us to, I encourage you to put your hope in Jesus. For he is the truly the one who will finish your ministry. So I'd like to take a moment and pray for you and pray for us before we jump into this amazing book of Ezra Nehemiah. Father, your name is above our name. Your kingdom is more important than our lives, our, our, our little kingdoms that we try and set up around us. Father, may your kingdom be fully realized in our hearts, our city, our world. Father, we've come before you and we audibly forgive those who have hurt us. We forgive them because you forgave us first. Father, keep us steady, grounded, courageous, stronger than what tempts us, loving because of the hope that we have in you. This assurance that you will not fail and that evil will not win. Father, we trust you to provide what we need. And God, help me to be a blessing to someone here this morning. May you have all the glory. You are truly worthy of it. Amen. Difficulty is designed to make you quit. Parents know this. Soldiers instinctively count on this. From day one of the Jesus movement, things have been difficult for the church. Every culture that the gospel has spread to has experienced difficulty and some variation, some level of cultural hostility, and we are not immune to this. Our culture is growing increasingly hostile to faith, especially if it's public, especially if it's alive. And with this reality in mind, over 100 churches met and studied the book of Ezra Nehemiah. It's two books now in our Bibles, but originally it's one book. And we studied it together so we could stand firm for the faith together against this growing hostility of our culture. And the title that we chose for the series was Unfinished Hope, Our Ruins, His Restoration. And you can see on the graphic, there's a red fox on it. And the reason the red fox is there is because in the middle of the third movement of the book, when Nehemiah is tasked with rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the culture came and looked at the walls and laughed at the walls and said, you know, this is a joke. If a red fox ran up this wall, it would collapse. But this book chronicles Israel's return from exile and it parallels our experience as ministers and missionaries to our city, our block, our culture, our world. So I'd love to take you through a little bit of Ezra Nehemiah and I pray that it inspires you and shows you what our proper expectations should be of ministry. So let's start off with what they expected to happen. There was prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament. And as, as they went through exile, they heard prophet after prophet after prophet tell them about what the future held for them, about a restoration. Isaiah and Hosea said there's gonna be a future messianic king. God's presence will be once again in the new temple. God's kingdom will extend not, over, not only over Israel, but over all of the surrounding nations. 
And God will ultimately fulfill every single promise he made to Abraham. And so you have these leaders, leader after leader, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and they all knew these promises. And so as they re-enter the land of Israel, the promised land, these promises, these beautiful promises are on their mind. This is what happens this is what happens. First is high hopes. And I don't, I don't know if you're a visionary person, if you thought to yourself, well, this is what it's going to look like as I serve my family. This is what my family is going to look like as we all follow and obey Jesus. And maybe you had an idea of what your missional community is supposed to look like. Maybe you had an idea of what your church was supposed to look like. I didn't really have a ton of, I didn't, maybe I didn't spend the time just thinking about what this church would look like. Really all I had was a direct command. So there I am in the Mecca of the Northwest, Pullman, Washington. Not a laugh line, don't, I'm just gonna stop you before you do. <laughs> and there I am and I'm uh, going along to be a history professor and I'm getting my PhD in US diplomatic history and God keeps, he whispers and then he starts getting louder and louder and louder. He's telling me, I didn't actually slam the door. I didn't actually tell you to switch careers. And I said, well, God, if you could just make it clear whether or not you want me to be a pastor or a professor, I'll do whatever you ask. Half hour later, I get an email from Dr. Bruce Pinkleton. And he said, hey, could we meet? I said, sure, let's meet at the bookie. A couple hours later, there I am at the bookie, sitting there sipping my coffee. And in comes Dr. Bruce Pinkleton, looking as uncomfortable as I've ever seen Bruce look. He sits down in front of me. He says, let me finish this conversation before you interrupt. This is really strange, and I've never done this before. I said, go ahead, Bruce, what's on your mind? He said, well, I was doing my devotions this morning, and I felt like God was telling me that I should meet with you and tell you that you should be a pastor, not a professor. So, wow, that was subtle, Bruce. It's really subtle. And you know, a year later, here I am on the east side. And, <laughs> you know, I've seen some, some beautiful plans for churches. I've, I've actually been in people's houses. I don't know if you're one of those people that actually has a, a vision and a vision statement, mission statement for your family. If, if you do, God bless you. Um, but uh, how many of you have seen a church planning video before? Uh, okay, Doxa is dropping the ball. You guys need to sh show more church planning videos, but they're beautiful. You have these cityscapes and you have these what if statements and you've got um, you know, a church planner walking in slow motion. You've got some beautiful royalty free music going in the background. But none of those statements, none of those visions is any better than what Ezra and Nehemiah had. A righteous ruler with power and grace. God himself among us. His kingdom fully realized in our hearts and our community and our city and the world. Abraham's seed, fully blessed and a blessing to everyone. And then they walk in and begin ministry. And the king of Persia, oh, the king of Persia gets this vision of God being worshiped. And he calls these men 
and agrees to these men and, and gives these men resources and they go back and you see this over and over and over again, three times in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have three men that are called to repair certain parts of the nation of Israel. You have Zerubbabel for the temple, Ezra for the community, Nehemiah for the walls, for the defense, for the governance. And you have these three panels that happens in every case. First of all, they are sent and given a blank check from the king of Persia, whether it is Cyrus or Artaxerxes, the same result. And each man starts out with a promise, sees God work in amazing ways, overcomes obstacles, and has reason to celebrate. And then reality hits. In each of these cases, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, you have this strange anticlimax. Zerubbabel finishes the altar of the temple and the foundation of the temple and they have a huge worship service that would put this one to shame. And some people cheer, but the elders, the ones who know what's going on, weep because God was not there. Because the presence of God was not visibly there like it was with the first temple. Ezra preaches and teaches and makes disciples and does everything he's supposed to do and then the people slide back into detestable idolatry which is which means child sacrifice and ritual prostitution and so enraged he commands 100 plus men to divorce their wives and put away their children Nehemiah has to build a wall with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, which means the work is slow. And even when Ezra and Nehemiah see some of this stuff sliding, they they decide to work harder. And they have this all-day Bible reading marathon, and they have people making commitments and coming down the aisle. And after all that, well, people are still neglecting the temple. They sink into idolatry and ignore the Sabbath. The last chapter of Ezra and Nehemiah Nehemiah loses it. Have you ever seen a pastor lose it? My wife has. (laughs) Other guys, not me, not me. It's not pretty, not pretty. There's a a little bit that Tim Mackey did for our, he runs the Bible Project and he puts up this beautiful cartoon of all this and uh, I put a slide up and if you can see the last cartoon frame there on my my left if you're looking over there. Can you see what Nehemiah has in his hand? It's hair from a backslider that he's already punched in the face and then he ripped his hair out. He loses it. And the book ends with Nehemiah asking God to remember his efforts. There's no panel four. There's no happy ending. There's no restoration. Just half-finished stuff. Nice tries, ruins. Even Nehemiah, with a blank check from the king of Persia, could not finish the work that God called him to. How are you doing so far? This is my attempt at an inspirational message. (laughs) How about us? Reality check 2018. This is the hope that God gave us for our church. A church made up of people who believe and obey everything that Jesus taught. Let me read that again slowly. A church that believes 
and obeys everything that Jesus taught. Second, a holy, powerful, complete church. Ephesians chapter 1. Good works seen by the community, rescuing people, becoming as a community, flourishing human beings filled with light. A united church. A united church. One church made up of all peoples, united by Christ, filled with the Spirit, saved by grace, and a church that can't be conquered. But you and I, we live and we breathe in the reality of the already, not yet. And I think we go through those same panels that Ezra and Nehemiah did. We often feel the joy of God's favor as we begin. So I came over here to plant a a church. And I came over not with a blank check from the king of Persia or the governor of Washington. I came over with about $3,200. Total, total. Which at the time was two months rent. I know now it's only a month here in Bellevue. (laughs) But we got on the ground and I I looked for a tent making job and there wasn't any history professor jobs and so I started selling TVs. And I, did it, I was paid full commission, which means if you don't sell anything, you go hungry. And I'm looking at the end of our first month in town as the bank account is sliding into oblivion. And I look at my possible commission check versus my rent check. The rent's here, commission's here. And so I do what any good church planner would do, which is immediately start praying. And I get on my knees and I say, God, you, you sent me here through Bruce Pinkerton. You sent me here. You told me I was supposed to go plant a church. Here I am. Please don't let my family starve. And it's funny that that month working selling TVs, I started off as number 93 in the company. And by the end of the month, I was number one. I love that. (laughs) I have these natural pauses, and um, some of you interpret them as as me wanting applause, and I actually really do appreciate it, so thank you. Um, Thank you for interpreting that that correctly. And thank you also for laughing at my jokes. Some people don't get it, and I, you know, people just get offended or just think I'm strange, so thank you. Praise Jesus for, for that. I still don't forgive you for not liking the Cougs, though. All right, I killed it. Um, so there I am, and uh, the, the sharks start to circle me at the, at the shop, you know, because that's what commission salesmen do, and they, they start asking me, what are you doing different? I said, well, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And they said, oh yeah, yeah, we, we, we believe you. Are you different sales technique, not taking no for an answer? And I said, well, I prayed. What else did you do? That's it, I prayed. Rent check here, commission check here, I prayed and God flipped it. I went home that night and Catherine said, you know, they're gonna ask you to pray for them. And I said, sweetie, you don't understand, these are hardened criminals. (laughs) And she just smiled. And sure enough, a couple days later, there I am in the middle of the store, things are kind of deserted. One salesman comes up and whispers to me. And there's nobody nearby. He's just, hey, I'm having kind of a rough month. Would you pray for me? And I was cessationist, but I went full charismatic at that moment. (laughs) 
Hand on shoulder, dear Jesus, please bless Justin. Give him a good month. Sure enough, that next month was Justin's best month he'd ever had. So you see God's favor. There was favor from our city. We went into our city, went into the Issaquah Highlands, and we said, how can we serve you? And they said, well, we're not really interested in having a church here. And I said, that's fine. How can we serve you? Is there anything that, that you need done that no one else will do? And they said, yeah, we've got this dog park celebration, uh, dedication coming up, and we need somebody to give away hot dogs. Did you guys see how wrong that is on so many levels? But there we are, giving away hot dogs. Next thing comes up and uh, we ask, how can we serve you? And they go, well, we need help at this Halloween party. And, and I said, well, I'm not gonna be in town, but I'll have my team. And I didn't know what costumes they were gonna use. Not sure I wanted the church represented, but leave that up there if you could. Just, well, one, because I'm not in, there, in it. But I go and I come back and I meet with the person in charge of the community volunteer efforts and I say, how, how did it go? She just starts crying and I said, oh no, I'm really sorry. And she said, I blew it. I was supposed to recruit so however many volunteers and I didn't recruit enough people and I burned out all the volunteers early and so they set up the 100 tables uh, outside that were from the community center and then they all were tired and so I let them go home but I had no idea how to get the 100 tables from the elementary school back to the community center and so I was leaving. I went to go deposit the money and coming back up the hill like how am I personally gonna get 100 folding tables back to the community center and I, she said, I drove up and, and Craig, which is, he's Linus, in the picture comes up and say, hey, we took care of all the tables. What do you want us to do next? And she said, you guys are so good to us as a community. She said, here's your rent form. You can see that line there where it says how much you pay every month. I want you to fill in whatever, whatever number you want. And I said, well, why would you do that? That your, the previous rent number was fair? And she said, well, I just want you guys to stay in the community forever. So we have these initial successes, God's favor as we begin, and there's obstacles, sure. I mean, we don't have any idea what we're doing. Maybe you feel that way with ministering to your family or your missional community. We don't have any idea what we're doing, but God blesses us, helps us overcome obstacles. We join SOMA, learn how to make missionaries in the everyday. And then there's this panel three, this strange anticlimax. See, what I found was that despite all this work, instead of a changed block, what I found was difficulty, exhaustion, and poverty. One of the quotes I resonated with the, the most early on in ministry was an old pastor, when I asked him how he was doing, he's like, look, I got nothing in the tank, and I got nothing in the bank. I gotta find a new career. It had all these head-on-the-desk moments. You know, when you, when you change a church, people leave. And they don't always leave well. Matter of fact, they don't always say goodbye. You find out from someone else that they're gone. And I'm sure you've had these experiences with, with missionary work that you've done, with ministry work that you've done, where people, they don't appreciate what you do. They don't say thank you. You try and help them, and the moment you can't help them any longer, they just leave mad. I remember going through having to lay off staff, as the budget tanks, I even put my resume out at one point. 
And in the midst of this, you start working harder and you start coming to grips with the darkness in your own heart. You don't realize how much you were, you were focused on results and how you expected it to go better and how you expected people to say, thank you and I love you. I found out just the, the way that I'm geared, I just kept working harder. I gotta make it work. We gotta do seven day Bible reading marathons. We're gonna have a stricter membership covenant I remember passing a dead raccoon, <laughs> you know, roadkill. Seriously, the first thought that entered my mind was, well, at least he's resting. <laughs> if that's your story, we need to talk, by the way, but I can't help you, but I'll point you to someone who can. Uh, I remember going home and asking my, my wife asked me how I'm doing. I was like, well, I'm, my poker face isn't working. Uh, I said, dear, I feel like a sponge that's been squeezed out, stomped on, run over, and then yelled at for being empty. My ruins. And it's not just my church. I, mean, I was part of a church planning movement, still am, Acts 29, and uh, not only did I see the difficulties in my church, but I watched, watched church after church after church, pastor after pastor after pastor quit, fail, Most of the early pictures of the church, frankly, bring me pain, because what I see is failure. All those people that we baptized even that we never saw again. My denomination that was so alive when I was growing up, they gave me a love for scripture, a love for Jesus. A recent leader of the denomination give, gave each one of the pastors a book. The book was called An Autopsy of a Dying Church. And the end result was, you know, you go through all this process, you know, where is your church at? What should you do? And the action step for most of the churches in my denomination was find a church planter and give your building to them. How are we doing? Here's the good news, brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, beyond the reality check, there is a panel four. It's not just... God's favor, overcoming obstacles, and then a strange anticlimax. There is a panel four, and that is the restoration, not brought about by your and I's brilliance, your and I's endurance. It's brought about by Jesus. Even for Nehemiah, Cyrus was not the promised king, Jesus was. Zerubbabel ends his ministry watching elders, the people that knew what it was supposed to be like, cry. But 300 years later, in Zerubbabel's temple, old Zach comes in for his once-in-a-lifetime chance to offer sacrifices to God. And to his great shock there in Zerubbabel's temple, on his foundation, an angel says, you, Zach, and your wife, you will bear the forerunner, the chosen, promised king, will come, and you will see him. And of course, even for old Zach, it was still an already but not yet situation. The generation that starts the church was promised by Jesus that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But in their lifetime, there were thousands of them, but they had existential crisis after crisis as the church was crushed and nearly destroyed. But the truth is that today, there are 2.2 billion people on this planet right now 
that claim the name of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you and I's local church will succeed. Will last. Frankly, all of the apostles, Paul, all the apostle Paul's churches are gone. You can go and see the ruins of those cities. Maybe they met over there, type instructions. But the truth is, they did endure because faithful men and faithful women passed it on to faithful men and faithful women who passed it on to faithful men and faithful women. The church is invisible after all. And someday the kingdom will fully come and your work is a part. Someday Jesus' kingdom will fully come and your work is a part. Someday Jesus' kingdom will fully come and your work is a part. So let me leave you with a couple things, a couple implications about life and mission in light of Jesus' inevitable restoration. Stand firm in the faith. That's a military phrase. Paul gives it to the the church in Corinth in chapter 16. He says, stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. That's a military phrase. There's those Roman soldiers with nails driven through their sandals, all of their armor facing forward. Hear that? And their shields then linked Together, in a line, stand firm. And that's because when this inevitable difficulties come, when El Wapo starts firing bullets at you, I wrecked it, didn't I? Uh, when, when enemies come, when difficulty comes, you stand firm together. Because if you run, the enemy kills all of you. Stand firm in the faith. Keep unfinished hope alive by keeping your expectations grounded. You and I are called to minister, called to do something difficult. Don't be surprised when it is difficult. Don't be surprised when it hurts. Don't be surprised when you feel like you want to quit. We are not ministering in Disneyland, brothers and sisters. And I personally, as an introvert, praise God for that. (laughs) I would last about three days in Disneyland. I know that because I spent two days there this year. (laughs) Do you remember Jesus' teaching on the parable of the seeds? A farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell in shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon soon wilted under a hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still, other seeds fell on fertile soil. And they produced a crop that was some 30, 60, even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Jesus is talking about ministry. Jesus is talking about you blessing your neighbors. Jesus is talking about you blessing your family and your city and people at your workplace. He's saying most of it's not going anywhere, but some of it will. And I pray to God that you would see that fruit. But know that Jesus was not kidding and he wanted us to hear that so that when we face difficulty, we wouldn't quit. 
keep unfinished hope alive by knowing that your mission is making disciples, not making a utopia. And making disciples is much different than making a utopia. I mean, God will, God will show you fruit. what's been beautiful about the work because we kept on, because we stand fir- firm in the faith, we're able to see neighbor after neighbor after neighbor come to know Jesus. Because we're in their lives, because we're inviting them to, to take part in our life, inviting them to dinner, trying to find ways to, to bless them, to serve them, we've got to see real seeds bearing fruit. My wife and I have got to see seven families within walking distance of our house become part of our church and do life together, be baptized. Converts become families. Families reach out in obedience to Jesus and start missional communities, become deaconesses of benevolence. For us at Soma Eastside, two missional communities have become 16 Four families that start the church have now become a beautiful crowd of 400 people. And what a privilege it is to come in the back of the auditorium and watch people come in and hug, greet each other, pray for each other, cry together, do life together. And I get to see it because God gave me the strength to endure and not to run. Keep unfinished hope alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hear this, please, brothers and sisters in Christ. The same power, which is what Colossians says, that that brought Jesus back from the dead is in you. And what that means is if God wanted your ministry to go any way that it wanted to, it would. And what that does is that allows us to rest in his sovereignty and be content. And just say, God, boy, I wish it would have gone better but I still trust in you. I still trust in your power. It means you can sleep at night, you can rest. You can actually take a day off. You can actually take a summer off from ministry so you can rest. Jesus said on the cross, the last thing he said, what did he say? It's finished. Contemplate that. You don't have to make a church that's good for sheep and bad for shepherds. You don't have to lose it and punch people in the face and tear their hair out. You can rest in God's provision. You can keep unfinished hope alive by working in response to the gospel. This, this one I paid dearly for, paid with all sorts of emotion. We don't do ministry so people will thank us. We do ministry as a way of thanking God for what he's already done for us. When I just was waiting for people to say thank you and to see results, what I did was grow embittered. But the same results will bring me joy if I simply do it in response to what Jesus has already done for me. Keep unfinished hope alive with the wisdom of saints through the ages. Remember that people that were so much more skilled than you or I, the end of their ministry looked like Paul. Have you ever read 2 Timothy? Paul writes to Timothy, he says, please, please would you, would you come and visit? Everyone else in the whole province has deserted me. Would you please bring me a coat? I'm cold. In the midst of that, Paul still stands firm in the faith. And brothers and sisters, remember the long view. Keep hope alive. Remember the long view. The reason you and I know who Jesus is is because your ancestors in the faith refused to run when there was difficulty. 
The first couple generations of faith, it looks something like this. Worship Caesar. They asked the Christians to worship Caesar by burning incense to Caesar and saying, Caesar is above all. And they refused. They said, no, Jesus is above all. And they said, well, okay, well, we're going to take away all of your property and all of your things. And they said, no, still, Jesus is above all. And they said, well, you're going to go to the Colosseum then. And there in the Colosseum, they, they, they wrapped fresh animal skins around them, still dripping blood. And they said, worship Caesar. And they said, no, Jesus is above all. And then they released the lions. And I don't know what was on their lips. I don't know if if there were complaints or questions like, God, I didn't think it was going to end like this. Or if their last words were more of a love song to Jesus. But I do know, I do know that none of them had phones when they were there. I do... (laughs) I'm a good enough speaker, I won't get distracted. Um, I do know that when the last thing they saw was lions in front of them, but then the next thing they saw was the very face of God. And what is amazing to me is watching a generation of that, one of the early church fathers said this, said the blood of the martyrs is seed. What they saw as unfinished, God restored and blessed and made it bear fruit. And on on one of the final sermons of the sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah, it kind of reminded me of Zerubbabel, reminded me of the third scene. Because as I was talking about this idea of being faithful and how important being faithful was, one of the young ladies in the young married ladies in the front begins to cry and she cries loud enough that people around her can hear. And she continued to cry through the sermon, the end of the sermon and then through the singing and people around her praying for and hugging. And, and <clears throat> by the leading of the spirit, I went up to her and I whispered in her ear and I said, sister, there will be a day when Jesus wipes away every tear The reason she was crying is because her husband had been unfaithful and because they were a very poor family and he spent thousands on strippers and tinder and and she had chosen to stand firm in the faith and to forgive and to take steps to restore the relationship and to keep ministering despite the difficulty. And I don't know how you feel, but I know that for sure that God will eventually restore. I know that Jesus, whatever difficulty you're in the middle of that is absolutely destroying you, that Jesus will restore, he will finish the work that you have started out to do. But for us, and I'll leave you with this, our instructions are here in Titus. And listen to this in light of the calling that we have and the light of the hope that we have. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Would you join me in praying? Father, out of love for you, out of response to you, we stand firm. 
shield to shield with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we face difficulty, we face sorrow, disappointment, frustration. People don't understand us, people don't thank us, but Father, we stand firm, waiting for your restoration. And Father, even if we don't see it, Father, we continue to work out of response, out of love, out of gratefulness for what Jesus has done for us. Father, please give us wisdom, strength, and love. Amen.